0: Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the Hill Gatton College of Pharmacy who helps make this podcast podcast, possible. Uh, it's a snowy day here uh, in the first week of December in Mountain Home, Tennessee. Uh, there's a lot to potentially talk about with the American Society of Hematology, ASH, meeting just finishing up. Uh, a lot of what was discussed there was, was fairly specialized. A lot of uh, CAR-T follow-up studies and new CAR-T studies. Uh, and I'm hoping to put together a, a podcast uh, next week maybe uh, with some of the pertinent updates for, for those of us who are generalists out there uh, who deal with uh, it all in the hemoc world and maybe not so specialized. But we did have a new approval last week uh, that came out almost instantly <laughs> after uh, recording or, or posting the podcast last week, and that's gilteritinib. So let's talk about gilteritinib. November 28th, the FDA approved gilteritinib for adults with relapsed or refractory flt 3 positive or flt 3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia. Now, this is the second FDA approval for uh, a specific flt 3 inhibitor. Uh, the first was midostaurin, which was approved last year. Now, the midostaurin approval was in combination uh, with 7 plus 3. It was 7 plus 3 for 7 days and then midostaurin for days 8 to 21. Um, and that was in with induction, so that was in the frontline setting. So this is the first FLT3 inhibitor approved in the relapsed refractory setting. I will mention, though, that drugs like serafinib and sunitinib do have some FLT3 activity and have been used for years in FLT3 mutated patients. This approval was based on the interim analysis of the ADMIRAL trial, which we'll talk more about later. But let's get into a little bit about what FLT3 is, since it's a target we haven't talked about a whole lot on the pod. And I'm drawing on some wonderful references here. Uh, last year's HOPA meeting, Amanda Seddon gave a great talk um, about FLT3, uh, so I'm using a lot of what she has, and, and especially her references that she had there. And then a former student, Kristen Thomas, uh, and one of her colleagues, Peter Campbell, recently wrote a nice review article uh, in the Journal of Oncology Pharmacy Practice as well, and I'll, I'll provide a, a link and tweet that out, uh, that review article. So what is FLT3? Well, it stands for SMS-related tyrosine kinase, or fms like tyrosine kinase, Uh, and it was also known as, in a previous life, as stem cell tyrosine kinase, and it is involved in the regulation of hematopoiesis. So it has a a distinct role in hematopoiesis. In fact, uh, it's believed that sunitinib's FLT3 inhibition is responsible for the mild myelosuppression that you see with sunitinib. You don't usually see myelosuppression with uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but you do see that with Sunitnib believed to be related to its FLT3 inhibition, uh, because FLT3 is part of uh, it's it's involved in regulating hematopoiesis and the growth of of um, stem cells and bone marrow precursor cells. Now, about 30% of patients with AML have a FLT3 mutation, and this denotes a more aggressive disease course, usually a higher white count. Upon diagnosis, it doesn't necessarily influence the ability to achieve a complete remission, but these patients are more, are more likely to relapse. So it's a more difficult to treat disease state. One of the theories here is that the uh, the myeloma not the myeloma, the uh, myeloid or AML stem cell has this constitutive activation of FLT3 uh, that renders it uh, harder to treat. So it's a pretty typical tyrosine. Uh, kinase and that a ligand binds to FLT3 that causes homodimerization, so one FLT3 next to another FLT3, that then leads to phosphorylation and signal transduction. Uh, I want to try to uh, describe to you what this kind of looks like when we talk into some specifics about these FLT3 inhibitors. So imagine uh, an AML cell, okay? And imagine that top half of that cell is a curved line, an arc. And then uh, in the middle of that curved line, you uh, draw two uppercase letter J's. J's my favorite letter. So two J's, right? So the top part of the J is a straight line coming down, then you cross uh, the cell membrane into the intracellular uh, cytoplasm, and then that J kind of hooks. Now there are two potential mutations in flip three that we see. The first is an internal tandem duplication. That happens in the juxtamembrane domain. So right where the J, as you're going down, drawing a J into the cell, right when you cross the cell membrane, right inside, immediately inside the cell is the juxta membrane domain. And about uh, most of the FLT3 mutations, um, so about 25% of patients who have AML will have an internal tandem duplication of FLT3 that leads to uh, constitutive activation or always on uh, FLT3. Now, imagine you go all the way down to the J and you know how the J's kind of curve up, right? So at the very bottom of that where the curve up, that's the tyrosine kinase domain, and that's where the ATP binding pocket is. Uh, and say five to 10% of patients with MA will have a tyrosine kinase domain mutation. So the more common type of uh, mutation is an internal tandem duplication mutation. Uh, we have first and second generation FLT3 inhibitors. First generation inhibitors include mitostarin, as I mentioned, already FDA approved, and serafinib and sunitinib. Now, mitostarin inhibits both wild type FLT3 as well as internal tandem duplication, mutated flt3 and tyrosine kinase domain mutations. The second generation flt3 inhibitors, which includes gilteritinib, are more potent and more selective for flt3. So flt3 inhibits, sorry, gilteritinib inhibits internal tandem duplication as well as tyrosine kinase domain mutations and one specific mutation the D 835 type of mutations. Uh, the D there stands for aspartic acid, so it's the 835th amino acid there, aspartic acid. There's a re- there's a mutation that can occur there that is linked to resistance to other FLT3 inhibitors. There's some other second-generation FLT3 inhibitors, uh, quisartinib and cr- uh, cronolomat- cronolinib, which uh, I know Quizartinib's at the gift date and will probably be approved sometime in 2019. So we talked first and second generation, FLT3 inhibitors, that relates to potency and selectivity. So the second generation are more potent and more selective for FLT3 as opposed to other tyrosine kinases. There's also a distinction of where this inhibition occurs. So there are type one and type two FLT3 inhibitors. Type one inhibitors include midostaurin, and they bind at the gatekeeper domain. So imagine at the very, so imagine that J again. So at the very tip of the curve, maybe that's where a type 1 inhibitor is going to bind. And by binding to that J, it actually causes a conformational change, which then prevents ATP from getting into the binding pocket. So it basically closes the port, so to speak. And that's how it works. Type 2 flip 3 inhibitors, which includes gilteritinib, actually bind in that binding pocket. So not in the outer edge of that. Uh, curve of the J, but in the very bottom of the J where ATP would bind, which then causes the phosphorylation. So gilteritinib is a type 2 FLT3 inhibitor, and mitostarin is a type 1 FLT3 inhibitor, which would have implications when dealing with, say, resistance to uh, a FLT3 inhibitor and trying to pick an appropriate next line agent in patients who, say, lost their uh, disease control or relapsed while on treatment with a FLT3 inhibitor. Okay. Let's talk about the Admiral study now. This was a study of 138 patients, and this approval was based on an interim analysis of this study, which has not yet been published in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, There is a phase one, phase two study um, from August of last year in uh, Lancet Oncology of Giltritinib, where they they found the dose that they used. Uh, So this is all based off what's in the package insert. So these were relapsed refractory AML patients with Either a FLT3 internal tandem duplication or tyrosine kinase domain mutation, or uh, the D a D835 mutation. Two of them. Uh, so 138 patients, and they were split about almost 50/50, but really 40/60 based on age. So 60% were under the age of 65, 40% 65 and older. 82% were ECOG 0/1. That means there was almost 20% of patients who were ECOG 2. Um, as far as performance status, 59% of these patients had relapsed AML and they had not had any treatment uh, for their relapsed AML, and 41% were primary refractory, which means they got 7 plus 3 or 5 plus 2 or, or some sort of treatment and they didn't achieve complete remission and they were enrolled in the study. The vast majority of the FLT3 mutations in the study, 88%, were internal tandem duplication mutations, which should not be surprising since that is the most common type of FLT3 mutation. Uh, These patients were given a dose of 120 milligrams daily uh, with or without food. So the drug can be taken without regard to food. This is different than mitostar, which needs to be taken with food for reasons of absorption. And they took the drug every day but just single agent until either toxicity uh, precluded its use or disease progression or, or lack of benefit from the drug. Complete response rate was a modest 11.6%. Uh, when you add in those who had a complete response with incomplete hematologic response, and as you'll remember from last week's pod, that would be an ANC of above 500, but not yet 1,000, or a kind of above 50, but not yet 100, uh, the complete remission and complete remission without with incomplete hematologic response is 21%. So the drug certainly has activity. And uh, to go a step further, about a third of patients who were transfusion dependent on, say, red blood cell or platelet transfusions, a third of those patients became transfusion independent for the two months uh, initially uh, following the beginning of treatment. So certainly has some disease activity and likely some quality of life benefits. Uh, So that's the good. Let's talk about the bad. Uh, I mentioned the dose is 120 milligrams a day. Uh, the drug comes as 40-milligram tablets, so you're talking three tablets a dose, and uh, it'll come in a 90-count bottle. Uh, the first uh, warning precaution we have is PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, which can present as altermental status usually, plus or minus seizures, and requires an MRI for diagnosis. So something clinicians should be aware of if patients act funny. Uh, it might be You might want to say to the docs, this could be PRESS. It's been reported in this drug, only 1% do we need an MRI to diagnose this? Uh, QT prolongation. A QT interval uh, of more than 500 milliseconds was seen in 1.4% of patients in all the uh, giltaritinib studies, and an increase of more than 60 milliseconds from baseline was seen in 7%. So the PI recommends an EKG at baseline, at day 8, day 15, and then monthly thereafter. Now keep in mind that uh, these patients with AML they're sick. They're at risk for neutropenic fever. They may very well be on fluoroquinolone like uh to prevent neutropenic fever. They may very well be on azelina fungals to prevent or treat fungal infections. Uh, they might be getting a lot of ondansetron for nausea that comes with their disease state. So there are a lot of potential QT-prolonging drugs these patients could be taking. So it does require careful monitoring of both ECG or EKG and potassium and magnesium. If they do have uh, patients uh, a A QTC more than 500 milliseconds, then the drug should be held. And once the QT interval uh, drops below 480 milliseconds, the drug can be restarted at a lower dose, 80 milligrams. This is essentially the same criteria for dose reduction and holding as we saw last week with clastigib, uh, the hedgehog inhibitor recently approved for AML patients. Uh, Pancreatitis was rarely seen. Don't have a percentage from the PI in these patients. And And if that happens, the drug should be held and restarted after the cessation of symptoms at 80 milligrams. Uh, Also, embryo-fetal toxicity is a concern and contraception should be used uh, by men and women of childbearing potential taking this drug. Before I get into more of the side effects, just a little little comment about evaluating the adverse event tables and percentages in a single-arm study with no placebo control in a group of really, really sick patients, okay? So these patients are sick. So I'm not going to talk about the percentage of patients who had hypotension or had pneumonia or cough because it's impossible to know if that is the drug or the disease state because these patients are really, really sick and really, really prone to infection because their white blood cells are not functional. They're AML cells, okay? So take take this stuff with a grain of salt. So one of the more common, in fact, the most common adverse event were myalgias and arthralgias, seen in 42% and that was grade five and 5%. Uh, in the studies. Uh, Increase in LFTs was 41%. 16% of the time, that was a grade three. Uh, I've seen LFT abnormalities with azole antifungals, which these patients very well may have been on. Um, This is is great. Non-infectious diarrhea occurred in 34% of patients and 27% of patients had constipation. Seems hard to blame that on a drug. Um, Nausea occurred in 27%, uh, 1% of that being grade three which is important. As far as notable uh, uh, absorption and distribution metabolism, excretion uh, is metabolized by 3, 4 and also a peak like a protein substrate. Uh, it's excreted uh, 65% in the feces, 16% of that is unchanged drug. Uh, and the half-life is 113 Hours. So you're talking a four and a half, I guess, day half life. So keep that in mind if, for instance, a patient has pancreatitis or press that you think is the drug. Keep that in mind when you're expecting uh, when the drug, uh, when uh, you would expect the patient to improve if it really was the drug. You might be talking one or two weeks till all the drug is sufficiently out of the system or most of the drug is out of the system to allow for recovery. There are some notable drug drug interactions. So because it is a 3-4 and p-glycoprotein substrate, there's interactions with, say, rifampin, which decreases the AUC by 70% of giltritinib. Uh, A strong 3-4 inhibitor, like itraconazole, increases the AUC by 120%, so doubling the exposure. Uh, A moderate 3-4 inhibitor, like fluconazole, increases exposure, or AUC, by 40%. So you do see a milder interaction with fluke than with itraconazole. It also inhibits 5-HT2B. Uh, or sigma non-specific receptors, and the PI says that may decrease the effect of uh, SSRIs, and they, they don't say SSRIs, they say three drugs: they say escitalopram, fluoxetine, and sertraline. So uh, when I read this, it was unclear if it's just this. These three drugs are all SSRIs, and after a little digging, it seems that the concern would go to all SSRIs. Uh, and, and again, not an expert in neuropharmacology, but that's what it seems like, and that's because you can find articles in PubMed about. The, uh, a necessity of 5 of of 5HT2B being required for SSRIs to work. Um, so it does seem that that would apply to all SSRIs. Certainly it's something that needs to be studied more. Uh, so these patients on SSRIs, it would be very interesting uh, to study the effects of uh, their mood uh, with you know uh, standard depression scales uh, when they start or maybe stop guiltretenib. Uh, The drug, or 5-HT2B, is also uh, implicated in causing vasodilation and therefore is thought to maybe be uh, a target if you block that in treating migraine headaches. Uh, And 5-HT2B agonism uh, or activity is linked to valvulopathy in patients taking stimulants for weight loss. So there's some interesting things down the line that may become important with this drug. Um, well, that's all I got about Gilt's Ritnib. Thank you very much uh, for listening, downloading. I would encourage you to, to go and, and uh, rate the podcast. Uh, give us a five-star rating and review us. Tell us what you like and would like to hear more about the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetnib. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And hopefully next week I'll get a little Ash update for generalists uh, like myself. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you all a little further down the road.